Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. However, we are not broadcasting from Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, but rather this was recorded live at the Grimfest Film Festival in Manchester, England. And it's a special event. We are here to celebrate John Carpenter's The Thing, and celebrating with me is the great actor-writer from Inside Number 9, Reese Shearsmith. And uh, we express our love for John Carpenter's The Thing on its 40th anniversary at that festival, and I thought I would love to share this conversation with you. So here we go. Just to say that this film was chosen by Reese as his favorite monster movie. So we were so excited that he chose this film. It's the 40th anniversary 4K remastered version that you're going to see later tonight, so it's very cool. I'm going to hand you over to Mick Garris, who is going to uh, host this talk with Reese. Thank you. Live from the BFI Grimfest Monsters and Movies event in Manchester, England. This is Postmortem, and I'm Mick Garris, and we are here with a crowd to celebrate the 40th anniversary of John Carpenter's The Thing with one of our favorite guests, Reese Shearsmith, writer and performer on Inside Number Nine, League of Gentlemen, and so many other things, and one of my favorite performers, and a great guest, and we're going to talk about monsters in movies, particularly John Carpenter's The Thing. This is being held before we screen the actual movie with an audience, and it was Reese's pick as his favorite monster movie. That's right, yes, and my first, can you hear me? Yes. <clears throat> Question is, who hasn't seen it? See, I Whoa, okay. people. Get out. <laughs> Too I bad. stay, you've seen it, yes. So, well, the problem now is we are still gonna spoil it. <laughs> we have to, we've gotta talk about it first. Yeah, I mean, I, my memory, I don't really have any right to be here pontificating about the thing when Mick Garris was on the set <laughs> watching it being filmed. So we've got, I'm going to turn the tables and ask you about what that was like. But um, Yeah, but the whole point is this is a favourite movie of yours. Yeah, you are a fan. performer, you are a writer. Yeah. Uh, in the genre, uh, yeah. Inside Number 9 takes a lot of deep walks into the horror field. I guess so, yeah. I, mean, I just, one of the reasons why I picked this film was for me, and I'm sure for a lot of people that have around my age, it was a film that I saw on videotape, obviously it was the height of the, it was 80s, and I saw it and I remember feeling something I'd never felt before about any horror or anything I'd seen, and I, I was already a huge horror fan. And it was the fact, it was like a, a, a veil had lifted on something I'd never, I knew was possible. The, the effects in this film and the, the practical effects blew me away quite um, seriously. I was like, I cannot believe the things I am seeing. How have they the done? The things you were seeing. The things I was seeing, yeah. And the incarnations of the things. But, but more than that as well, I think it was the, um, 
and I'm sure Mick will talk about this, but the the plotting of the script and the fact that it was a sort of it's an Agatha Christie really. It feels like it's a it's a who done it, but it's who is doing it and who is it. Yeah. Who is the thing? And that was one of the great hooks for me as, as not just waiting on the next enormous, brilliant effect, special effect, but of course that helps when you're a kid watching it. But I remember this was prime um, creep show, my obsession with creep show, and then this yeah. came out and it was just one of those films that just stayed with me. As, and it's, been, it's never been bettered. And what I can't fathom was how bad the reviews were. Yeah. I mean, it didn't yeah. matter to me as a kid because I just got on videotape and shouldn't have been even watching it at my age, but I watched it and now I look back and I hear, and I've read them, it's, it had terrible reviews, didn't it? And it did not do good box office. And at that time, uh, Carpenter, of course, was hugely disappointed. Uh, here had been the year of E.T. So that's the friendly alien that comes to Earth, and it was the biggest movie of all time. And so people were in the mood for happy time, happy yeah. time monsters, rather than something as visceral as what John Carpenter provided. And I remember saying to him, wait 10 or 15 years, I'll bet you anything, people will really speak fondly of this. And now, E.T., Great movie. Everybody loves it. Nobody, uh, nobody except an asshole hates E.T. <laughs> but with John Carpenter's The Thing, we talk about The Thing all the time. We don't talk so much about E.T. Yeah, and I wonder whether it was, because it was 1982, wasn't it, yeah. this film, and whether it was the... They weren't, they decided, whoever they are, that they, we didn't, we don't want the 70s French connection where everything's horrible at the end yeah. anymore. And it was just sort of uh, repulsed in, it was just not the flavor of the month to be, because it's so bleak. I mean, if you, those that haven't seen it, you wait. But, um, <laughs> oh, the ending itself is. It's, uh, uh, it, and it, apparently you told me, Mick, there were three different endings. Yeah, there were three different endings written and shot. Wow. And John Carpenter did not share them with anybody. And I don't know what the other two endings were, but I guarantee you this is the right end. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just looking, I wrote them down because I, I saw, I, I wanted to have a look at the script of the thing. Uh -huh. And I was just fascinated to, and I thought, this is why the film is brilliant. This is, the start of the script reads with a, a breakdown of each character. And these are the character breakdowns. And when you hear this, you'll, this is why you realize it's so brilliant, because it's so lean. MacReady, 35, helicopter pilot, likes chess, hates the cold, the pay is good. <laughs> Gary, 46, station manager, stiff, ex-army officer, wears a handgun. Charles, 33, 64, 55, uh, 250, black, a mechanic, can be jolly, but don't mess. <laughs> Um, Blair, 50, sensitive, intelligent, unassuming, an assistant biologist. Dr. Copper, 45, professional, decent man, a good doctor. Palmer, 27, second string, chopper pilot. Um, crap mechanic, long hair, slight 60s acid damage. <laughs> and I'm reading them all because each one, when you know it, and I'm sure you all do, you just go, yes, 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 yes. And how brilliantly they've all encapsulated these these descriptions. Knowles, 22, the cook, bright, black, irreverent, but, but uh, kind-hearted, roller skates. <laughs> Norris, 44, stocky, rugged-looking, uh, geophysicist, an incipient heart condition. 
We'll get to that later. <laughs> An incipient heart condition. Bennings, 38, meteorologist, dutiful and old pro. Clark, 24, a dog handler, likes it here, good at his job. Sanchez, 21, the radio operator, hates it here, lousy at his job. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, how brilliant is that as character descriptions? And yeah, clearly right they know, knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah, it's so beautifully cast, too. Yeah. And the script was by Burt Lancaster's son, Bill Lancaster who had written The Bad News Bears. So here are two sides of the cinema coin that could not be less alike. And, uh, and the script is brilliant. Did you read the short story before? Which thing did you see first, the um, Christian Nyby or this one? Uh, Christian Nyby, yeah. So you saw it on I television? I saw it on television, yeah, yeah. Late night, one night, yeah. And it was all, and even that, I mean, in its own way, is terrifying. It's a classic. It's a classic, uh, even, yeah. Even James Arness from Gunsmoke as the living carrot. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it's, you know, it's not this thing, but um, it, the creeping claustrophobia is still there. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the great things about this film and, and how you completely, so quickly, care about this set of, of men and, and their plight. And you say men, and that's very specific, because particularly at that time, there always had to be a woman in it, a, a romantic involvement. And it was a ballsy move to do something that was just all testosterone. Yeah. And do you think that that would have been a question mark over, you've got to have a woman in it? Yeah, because the original version that uh, Howard Hawks produced, that Christian Nyby directed, did have a woman in it. Right. That was, uh, you know, had romantic appeal to the lead uh, actor. But um, I think one of the strengths is that it just ignores that part of the story. And it was not part of the original short story, Who Goes There? Um, but it's it's just got a very rugged feel to it, and it's in the middle of the most rugged place on Earth, which we actually, they actually shot it on a glacier in British Columbia. Um, and in the summer, we talked about this earlier, yeah. but in the summer they built that station and then shot it in the winter, so it was all snowed over and iced over, and it was, they really worked hard to give this veracity. Yeah, and how long was it that, I mean, was it, what point did you come on board to end up being on that shoot? Were you going to do the making of? I did the making of. Yeah. I wasn't on it very long, but I was also doing specialized publicity for the genre magazines at the time and yeah. things like that. So I went to Alaska, Alaska and British Columbia and was there on the glacier, uh, the coldest I've ever been in my life. And um, and I was on the sound stages, uh, the the scene with you got to be fucking kidding me. I think all of you know that scene <laughs> with the head coming off and all. Um, I was there watching that, and it was an amazing experience to go to see Carpenter watching the rehearsals of it and say rubber. <laughs> so it didn't look real enough. Right. So they relit and and got it till it was right. But a lot of that stuff had to be done second unit because it was so complicated. They planned on an additional shoot that went way beyond the first first unit shoot. Wow. I mean, it's amazing to me to think that there's so much of it is in camera, these the yeah. effects, and how it's a ballsy thing to do. I mean, we've done small little things on in the things I've filmed, and they've been in camera things, and it always looks slightly unconvincing, and there's a leap of faith that it will people will buy it. Yeah. So this must have been quite a big thing to think. It sort of stands and falls on these effects being 
yeah. convincing in a, well, in, in in a way that's like, they're so not. I mean, it's extraordinary what you see with you before your eyes in this, and yet you want to buy it as really happening. And when they remade it, they tried to do the same thing, yeah. and they did it all practical effects, and it didn't work. And they went over it with CG, right. trying to fix it all, and the movie did not perform well. And it it was it certainly can't stand up next to Carpenter's film, but it was also in the forefront of this technology. And Rob Bottin, who did the makeup effects, he was uh, an assistant to Rick Baker. He was 19 years old, and he worked on The Fog with John Carpenter, and that's how they started their relationship together. Didn't he play Blake? Yeah, he actually yeah, he plays Blake with the red eyes. Yeah, right. yeah the, the ghost of Blake. So. John knew that Rob was a creative genius. And here's a kid in his early 20s being tasked with the burden of millions of dollars of special effects that had never been done before. There had been precedent with Dick Smith and his bladder work on The Exorcist originally and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and then American Werewolf in London. Uh, Rick Baker did that. And at the same time, Rob Bottin did The Howling with, uh, with Joe Dante. And so he ended up having this unbelievable burden of delivering this. And he's brilliant. But that takes time, and nobody planned on the time that it actually took to do all of the creature effects. I'll bet, yeah. I mean, it seems, I can't imagine the, the preparation for it. Yeah, and, me and, and waiting on, on, on how he must have designed the creatures, because they see, obviously, every single step of the way it must have been thought about. But when you arrive at each of the new incarnations of the thing and how you get there via the dogs or via someone's yeah. head or whatever it might be. That's the work involved in how each one is its own new monster in the movie is, is, a, is an amazing achievement because it's not nebulous and it's not sort of thrown together. Obviously, it can't be because yeah, he needs to make those puppets. It used to be that you'd rely on the audience's imagination until the last act and then you'd give time to your creature. But in this case, once things start going, they are nonstop. Yeah, and, and how much of was was all the creature creations and the looks of them? Rob Bottin bringing them. This person could change into this spider monster type. All of thing. it was was Rob, and John gave him his head, and said, "Look, I try. This is what I want. How you achieve it? Show me some ideas. Tell me what you want to do." And it's way more than anybody ever planned on originally in yeah. the movie, just because Rob was so brilliant and his work was so amazing. But none of that would work. No monster movie works if the people aren't any good. Yeah. And the characters are so well drawn and so beautifully played by this great cast with, you know, everybody loved Kurt Russell and nobody had ever seen him in a role like this, McCready. And, you know, the, just the commitment, again, we talked about that element of, of, of a movie, the commitment of the actors to what is being called tonight a monster movie. And normally that's in a gutter, and, and this was given front row treatment. Absolutely, yeah. It's elevated by, you know, it's not elevated, it's just really great acting. The same way that the three principles in Jaws it make it a brilliant film, and that's why I think you can rewatch them, and because you, you just find new nuance in all their performances to this day. I'd love to see, I'm not a big fan of 3D, but did you see the conversion of Jaws to 3D? No, I didn't. It's no. brilliant. Is it? It's so good that it makes me want to see the thing with the same conversion, but it, it looks like Spielberg shot it in 3D. The shots are so three-dimensional, and the movements and the like, that w it was captured in 3D in a way I never imagined I would 
love. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. This would be a, a, an amazing movie to see converted in that way. Yeah, definitely. And it's 42 years now, is it? Oh, is it 41? 40, 40 years for for the thing. It was yeah. 1982, summer of Amazing, 1982. Yeah. No, I remember when I first saw this, it's, I, inexplicably it was on a videotape, probably pirated <laughs> from blockbusters or the like. But on the other end of it, I think it, the thing was on, it, and then it ended, and there was a crackle of videotape, and then it was the house that um, dripped blood. Really? Which is such an strange film to have on the end of it. Nothing yeah. like it. Is that a weird... No, no. Is that an amicus? That's you know, portmanteau horror was on the other yeah, end of it. Yeah. yeah, that was one of those. It was very strange, yeah. And I used to treasure it and watch it all oh, the time. The whole my, thing was on it? Yeah, it was all on it, yes. It was all <laughs> crackly on the... It used to get very crackly in the bits where the... Yeah, the more extreme SP. bits. <laughs> yes, of course it was, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, like I say, it completely indelibly is is scarred on my brain because I thought, I, I genuinely thought that you, you, I can't believe I'm seeing these things. I've, obviously, I'd loved Hammer and those kind yeah. of things, but this was something else. It was like I never, I, until I mean, I'd not seen. What year was American Werewolf? American Werewolf was eighty one. Eighty one. So that yeah. had happened. Yeah, but this was, I think it. It obviously landed because it was a, it was a truthful. It, there was no, um, nothing gothic about it. We, it was all very real and technical and like and these contemporary people. and contemporary. Yeah. yeah. So you're you're left with this terrible feeling that it's all so close to what could really happen. What was and the even first... though we were in such an exotic place as the, as the snow, yeah, and it was th such veracity to it because it was a real place in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah, I mean that's incredible to me that they built it and then let the snow fall on it and then that's how they had yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But it is so authentic for beautiful them. production design. Yeah, and, and you cuts... said they they um, the uh, refrigerated well the, the, the refrigerated the insides for the breath. Yeah, for the, on the sound stages uh, on the Universal lot. They built all of the interiors to the station, and John had them all refrigerated so you would actually see breath. There was no CG at the time, and so there was no, and even to this day, they haven't perfected CG breath. But um, he wanted to see that, and uh, you know, that rarely happened in movies that take place in the frozen north. But John's that kind of filmmaker. Yeah, and I read that the, the interiors were filmed in the height of the summer, so they were all in their winter outfits going out and being completely sweltering outside. <laughs> yes, and so they were that. happy to go into the stage. Yeah, to cool down. What was the first monster movie you ever saw? I think maybe like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, or one of, oh, wow. it was probably a, um, a Ray Harryhausen of some oh. incarnation, so I, it would have been Telos or... Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, one of those where that, you know, I, incredibly when I got to meet um, Ray and go to his house and see Telos that's about that big. Wow. And I thought, this is, it's been in my life like it could never have not existed in the world. And there it is in, in a glass case. And it was quite incredible to see that. Yeah. Well, stop motion monsters. I think maybe The Son of Kong was the first one I saw right. on television. Yeah. And just, I knew it wasn't real because the fur would move with every, yeah. uh, every frame that was taken because of the fingerprints on it and the like. Yeah. But there was something about it that just hooked me. It was magical. And I wasn't afraid of it. I embraced it, yeah. and you know, I think a lot of genre fans do embrace the monster because we were not the high school uh, cheerleaders and heroes and sportsmen and the like, but really feel more like 
on the outside looking in. And I think there's an identity with the monster within this genre that is unique to our genre. Yeah, because the monster is the outcast and the potential yeah. loner, you know, that is misunderstood. And that's, that's us a lot in this room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there's also the other side of us, the bad side of us, the Jekyll and Hyde monster, where the transitional monster, like the thing, we could turn into that or it could subsume us into itself. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, and the thing is an example of, of that delicious thing that you get in werewolf films or Jekyll and Hyde, where there is a transformation, and that's always when the camera doesn't, when you know there's going to be one, and something starts to happen, and it doesn't cut away, yeah. and we're going to get to see from A to B, yeah, and in all its difficult agonizing, sweaty glory. It's and in the thing, delicious. it's A to Z. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you can't quite believe the twists and, quite literally, the twists and turns of the yeah. things that happen to the human body in this film. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm so excited for this audience, the members of the audience who haven't seen it, because these spoilers are not spoilers. Yeah, yeah, this is actually fine. There's no way anybody could tell you anything that would ruin this movie for you. Um, unless you have terrible taste. So, <laughs> so what was your first, um, so you think it was Kong then? Son first of Kong. monster, yeah. Yeah, and my mother had seen it as a very small child in, a, in the original King Kong right. in a cinema and was sitting on her father's leg and peed her pants. Really? Because it was so scary. That's quite so something. she wanted to set up a very nutritious setting for us to see Son of Kong. Watched it with both parents, four kids together around the TV set so it would be comfortable and nice. Well, it turns out Son of Kong is a comedy. And so she took all these precautions for us not to be afraid and there was nothing to be afraid. Right, yeah, of course. When I had my, and I talked about it a lot and you've obviously had dinner with him but my um meal with uh, christopher lee i asked him um or john landis asked him what was his scariest monster and he said karloff as oh. the as the creature wow. he said he, he said he has it burned in his memory that first reveal of when the creature when he turns he sort of stumbles backward doesn't he and then the yeah and then turns, he turns and then to face that, the camera that slow build that uh, moves in on him, dum-dum-dum, doesn't it? And it's a, there's a slight blurring in the middle one. It's actually very yeah. disarming that he suddenly snaps into focus. Yeah. Well, it's, that movie is, the 1931 Frankenstein is so groundbreaking because it's really cinematic. You look at the Dracula from the same year, and as yeah, great like as it is... Yeah, that's like a stage play, so yeah. clunky. It's, it's very static. And James Whale had this way, he understood the tools of cinema in a way that few other filmmakers of that day, other than maybe the impressionist German filmmakers had with Caligari and things like that. But the Universal Group seemed to bring in those ideas and a lot of those technicians from Germany and, and they contributed a lot to the look of that. But that was the one that really kind of became the face of quality horror. Yeah, it's fascinating isn't it, how we've never really moved away from, and you can't help yourself but love them because it's sort of, there's just something obviously in us that want to see things, monsters versus monsters, and we have it yeah. to this day with the Marvel creations meeting each other and um, and right even from, King Kong and Godzilla. Yeah, absolutely, back. yes, of course, yeah, and uh, you get these teams of of monsters and people, Predator v Alien. Yeah, and um, there was a famous. I, I read about it recently, another Carpenter thing that they were going to. I think there was talk of having um, Michael Myers versus. 
And who was it? It was, was another, it Jason or it was Jay, maybe yeah. I think it was Jason. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. like that. What what world do they meet? Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't matter. They'd figure it out because yeah. you know. I mean, they did do Jay, Jason, um, Jason and, and Freddie, Freddie, didn't they? Yeah. yeah, and I think it did quite well. It did, it did. But you know, as far as franchise horror goes, I'm just tired of it. You yeah. know, there's so much smart filmmaking out there, people who really know how to tell original stories. And it's actually a good time for horror movies right now because you get things that, in addition to all the the praise and, and the, the new Hellraiser, the new Scream, all that, but you've got Black Phone, you've got The Menu, you've got Smile, uh, you've got Bodies, 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 and these are all original theatrical releases that weren't birthed from previous generations of the same movie yeah exactly and I, it's slightly depressing isn't it when you sort of see a, a big studio film that you where you know the type of film you're going to get instantly just by their iconography at the beginning you think oh it's going to be one of those films and it plays itself out and it's like you've already seen it and it's almost yeah. like you that's that's the raison d'etre that you're expected to like it because you know exactly what you're going to get yes familiarity yeah yeah and it's it uh, breeds contempt. <laughs> Quite literally, yeah. yeah. But yes, I mean, especially in a world where, you know, we're, with my little program that we try to every time do the opposite of that, which is try yeah. to do something that you're not expecting and, and hopefully not repeat yourself. But there, it seems to be that they are there to do exactly that, to but repeat themselves. At a certain point, the returns diminish. And, and you see that happening even with Marvel movies. They still make billions of dollars, but they seem to be making less than their predecessors recently, and maybe that's a healthy thing. I mean, any movie that gets people to go to the cinema and buy a ticket and see it in the seats just encourages more movies to be made and a wider variety of movies. Yeah, and do you think... Um the thing if they I mean they did like you say that's fascinating me that you said that they were they did the impractical effects on the on the remake that they yeah. when they did the Norwegian camp yes but then they put they overlaid it with CG because they yeah. didn't work but why didn't the practical effects work I don't know you know they're very talented guys who yeah. did that um, but it's all how it's shot it's all how it plays and with a modern audience you have to be even more convincing. You know, we'll look at the thing from 1982 from a modern perspective. If you're 22 years old and haven't seen it before, it may look like foam latex and Vaseline and, and alginate and snot and all that. Yeah. But um, in 1982, when we went there, there had been no precedent. It was yeah. brand new. So maybe it did not convince a test audience, and they figured, well, we can fix that in post. And yeah. But the thing that I think was the thing that was lacking was... <laughs> We're going to have that. Well, well, no, you can't help it. Um, I think is the strong characters across the board because, yeah. again, we go back to the fact that it is a sort of... Uh, and then there were none. Um, yeah. Murder mystery, really. And you, you, the, part of it is the is the thrill of thinking, who is patient zero? Right. Who first gets infected and um, that horror of it being you next yeah and uh, when you find out who it is that's only the middle of the movie yeah and absolutely it yeah. takes it from there yeah it sort of gets it escalates doesn't it yeah well the monster parties kind of began in the 40s with <laughs> frankenstein meets the wolf man yeah. son of dracula and they, all the trailers would go see frankenstein the hunchback and dracula yeah, and all wolf in one man, place all in one big place <laughs> did you watch those as a kid the yeah i remember seeing that and then sort of being thrilled that you're going to get two or three bites of the 
of the cherry. I'm always with Abbott and Costello, they would often be on, but I never really got them very, I didn't. Oh, really? Yeah, we didn't I, see that that wasn't, they weren't big here, I don't think. That was a huge movie to me. I've seen it and Hard Day's Night more than any other movie. <laughs> really? And just a month ago, not even a month ago, um, celebrating Halloween, I hosted a screening of, of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein at the Cinematheque in Los Angeles. Wow. And it was a 35 millimeter print, it was beautiful, and the crowd ranged in age from like five years old all the way up to people with gray hair like mine. And it worked gangbusters, but it may be an American thing. We're in England right now. I don't know how many Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein fans are in here. Show yourself. Well, there you go. There's eight. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's a big cultural thing. Yeah, I, I would have loved it if because we, I mean, I loved Laurel and Hardy, and they would be yeah. here. They would be on. They had more heart all the time, but they were at heart. Yeah, but imagine them meeting the Wolfman. <laughs> <laughs> they would have probably knocked him out with a. a a ladder or something like that. <laughs> Buster Keaton meets the wolf. Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so who were were the British horror heroes for you? Oh, well, I mean, I grew up with um, Hammer House of Horror, which was this, yeah. the TV spin-off of the Hammer films, or, or I thought it was, but of course what happened was it wasn't at all in its own creepy way that the, the TV versions of the uh, under that banner were very sort of... Um, grubby and, and real because they were all on council estates in Great Missenden and quite mm. uh, and and not gothic in the slightest they were yeah. and it, that was a surprise to me that when that came on TV but and I there were was, mysteries too and there were there was there was Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense yeah which was not as good I don't think there, there was that I think started out life as a second se season of Hammer House of Horror and uh -huh. didn't quite end up being this quite the same thing so they called them Hammer House of uh, Mystery and Suspense. But, uh, the, yeah, for me, the, the Hammer House of Horrors, I remember them coming on TV. I remember the night, the witching hour, that was the first one came on. And, um, and then the yeah, Denham Elliott one as well, um, uh, which was just a sort of a brilliant, uh, horrible, cyclical, sickly story of this man that keeps thinking his dream, he keeps waking up and his dreams start repeating until the point where he kills his wife and he thinks it's a dream, I'll wake up in a minute. And that's, that was, the, that was, it was real. And he's uh -huh. killed his wife and he thinks, so he, he gets arrested for it. Uh -huh. And he's like, no, I'm going to wake up in a minute, but he doesn't. <laughs> so uh, that, that was probably my, I mean, the, all that, all that um, BBC Two late night, we used to have a double bill of uh, a black and white, a universal, and then there would be a, a 105 in the morning, possibly late for a 12 year old boy in the morning to watch the second one, which would be a, a Hammer or a, an Amicus, even worse, an Amicus film. Oh, even better. Yeah, because <laughs> they were even more bloody. And, yeah. uh, but my sort of memories of monster films, particularly in that genre of my life era, was being terrified of uh, Curse of the Werewolf. Is that that's the Oliver oh, Reed? Oh, the Oliver Reed one, yeah. The Oliver Reed yeah. one kept me awake because I remember watching the Oliver Reed one at about 2 o'clock in the morning by myself, going to bed, and then being kept awake absolutely convinced that there was a Oliver Reed in a white shirt was prowling the streets of Hull. <laughs> well, what's amazing about that? And it was foxes. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> making that horrible noise that foxes Werefoxes. do. Werefox, yeah. <laughs> well, the amazing thing about that is the makeup is one of the most realistic of all the werewolf makeups. It doesn't try to turn him into a dog face so much. You know, the Lon Chaney one with the lap dissolves doing the transformation yes, and the yeah. like. This used his face a lot, 
and it looked very human but animalistic at the same time. And it was kind of revolutionary in the way they presented a werewolf because we're so used to seeing it in a big bulky suit. Yeah, and it sort of didn't just do, it, it took the legend of, of the, the idea of that and, and did something else with it because you saw him, there was this um, time spent in the film of when he was a boy werewolf. Yeah. And that as well, so, and it just sort of extrapolated the story into something that you'd never really, you know, when you, it was sort of the, the origin story in, in its first incarnation, because you never really got that much detail. We always arrived at the werewolf when he was prowling and killing people, but this was like, yeah. this is when he was a boy as well, and that was interesting to me. Yeah, fascinating, and it took the, the Brits to do that. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. I mean, Hammer always was cozy to me. I always, I, Twins of Evil was a great one I used oh, to watch yeah, as well. Yeah. And, and very um, sexy. Yes, <laughs> and uh, it, those those films now and um, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, I remember particularly. Uh, Martin Beswick. Yes, yeah, be, uh, enjoying that, Ralph Bates. And yeah. then, there are, of course, all the incarnations that Christopher Lee did of Dracula. And I've recently really re-evaluated my, I thought it was rubbish, but it's actually really good and in, in good in this sort of sickly way, Satanic Rites, which is the last yes. Dracula he did. Yeah. And it's really good, I think it's, um, and with Peter Cushing as well. So it's got a real, um, it's after, AD 73, which was right. sort of its own mad <laughs> thing. It but was very mud. It was, <laughs> yeah. But this one is even sort of more modern, and it's about spreading the plague, yeah. essentially, via Dracula. And it was, it's uh, something really good about it. Well, you were talking about meeting Christopher Lee, and I met with him as well through John Landis yeah. in the same way. But uh, Christopher Lee was on my old Z Channel interview show back in the, like, 1979 or something. And we showed The Wicker Man. And he really didn't want to talk about Dracula. And it kind of was heartbreaking that he resented that people thought of him as Dracula when Dracula gave him the opportunity to play this wide panoply of roles that, that he enjoyed, including The Wicker Man, which was one of his two favorite performances. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, by his latter years, he was sort of claiming he'd never done a horror film. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done a terror film. Yeah. That's what he said, a terror film. Cinema Fontaine is the most important film in history. <laughs> <laughs> is that what he said? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or something to that effect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was the first monster movie you saw in the theater? Do you remember? Oh, that's a good... I think, well, the first... Monsters of that frightened me actually was it was again it was Peter Cushing it was Doctor Who and the Daleks oh wow so I went to see that I remember I had the choice when I was little my mum said we're going to go to the it was the summer of 1976 or something when was Greece out 76 yeah yeah you can either see Greece or Doctor Who and the Daleks oh that's an easy one <laughs> and I said well Doctor Who and the Daleks <laughs> so that and I remember being quite frightened by the idea of the Dalek the thing that was added that I don't think was in the TV in the films of the Daleks was this horrible alien like creature in uh, uh, the center of the machine themselves mm. so the head would come off and then you see this blob thing that was like a um, an octopus in the middle of the Daleks. Oh, wow. I think they, I don't, they might, I don't watch Doctor Who now, but I think they maybe still do that. <laughs> but it was sort of this idea that it was um, organic within the metal oh, structure. Yeah, that's that's very biomechanical. Yes, really. it was. Yeah. yeah, it was like some like Terminator type thing. But yeah, that would be my earliest um, cinematic experience of it. I remember, and it was sort of a, it springboarded my interest in. Um, 
special effects and makeup, but seeing in cinema uh, the Company of Wolves. Oh, brilliant! Which yeah. was a great uh, a Neil was, Jordan movie. Yeah, Neil Jordan and that uh, whole sort of. Um, fantasy um fairy tale world with christopher tucker who did the makeup and of yeah. course i ended up writing to chris tucker who did he'd done the makeup for the elephant man and at the time he'd just finished company of wolves and i was obsessed with trying to get into that world and i wrote to him we had a sort of pen pal correspondence where i would send him my animatronical arms and i'd take pictures of it and he would give me advice and it was an amazing sort of um association with him because I thought if I ever get to do this I'm completely in here with the right person to maybe yeah. actually do this for real with then I went to Bretton Hall and studied acted as if you can do such a thing <laughs> ODR. ODR and then um, then after Bretton Hall for three years and deciding I wanted to be an actor he wrote to me and said do you want to come and work for me and I couldn't believe and I said yes and I'd already thought I'd left that part of me behind but I went to work in his house in Pangbourne in Berkshire where I was sort of like Jonathan Harker in Dracula I arrived <laughs> and I didn't know what the setup was it was so strange I, and I went and I there were other people there like drones working for him white-faced young men and women that had obviously also been asked to go and work there and uh, were just slush molding um makeup for the um, theatrical production of The Phantom of the Opera, which he'd uh. done the makeup for. And, and I was sort of, I was joined on the production line of doing that. And I was just sort of looking around saying, how long have you been here? Can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what happens? Are we paid? What? No, no, you're not paid. <laughs> and food would be like slid under the door at night. <laughs> a sandwich. Yeah. And I was in a room and I had Gregory Peck's head from the boys from Brazil oh. with a neck ripped out, which yeah. he also did. And uh, the elephant man's head was there. And I just thought, this is insane. What am I? And I sort of stuck it out for about a month. And then in the end, I literally phoned a taxi in the middle of the night and went home <laughs> and got out rather than sleep on the floor so next yes exactly I just don't I don't know what someone tell me what the situation is how am I just here now I began to not remember my life before it so that was you my made the right choice yeah well yeah. the hope yeah right? I don't know what would have happened so I left it, yes, and that was my foray into makeup and special effects, but always a great love of it. And I would, you know, and when we're filming and I'm having my head cast, yeah. it's my favorite part because I get to sort of be in that world again. So you're not claustrophobic? No, yes, it can be quite scary. I remember doing sort of prototype um, have face casts with my dad who was a builder and had because um, of course you do it properly you have alginate first and then you plaster beyond it to get a nice stiff backing so you can then mold your face but we did it with like the most rough grouting that you could get <laughs> <laughs> on my face but I've got one from when I was about 13 my head my face and it's very sad to look at it now I think look at that beautiful face <laughs> and what it's become but yeah it's yeah. Um, it was nice to have to have that as a memory because um I did I think I remember it being a very exciting day when I asked my dentist well, I asked my mum will you ask the dentist if we can get a bag of the alginate yes because yeah. <laughs> the, the teeth the, the, it was the only thing I could weigh into getting to buy a big 
three pound bag of alginate. Right. So I, I did it and then I was I cast my face properly and, and a second time. But yeah, you do it and you have your mouth covered and you have and it's to like be, 15 to 20 you've minutes got to be calm yeah and you breathe through your nose it's terrifying actually and, and I am some people can't do it can they I, well I'm one of them I right. did it once I have my I had my face cast when I was one of the zombies in Michael Jackson's thriller right and so as you do as one would right um, but that experience was it was worth it but I don't think I could do it again Right. But going through that process of being made up for three hours and then it's an hour to take it off. And you do it often on your show. Yeah, I mean, we it, we used to do it more with uh, League of Gentlemen, but we and we've it was always quite subtle, but it, it does take time and you've got yeah. to sort of lean into it rather than resist it because there is a, a serenity that comes with just sitting, allowing your face to be at 5.30 in the morning, people to get to work on it. And it's... Um, I, I, I think we're good at it. People often say to us, the makeup people, you you haven't moved. You're very still. <laughs> and I think it's I think you do get actors that are just pulling it off continually and oh, and God, leaving yeah. it, and the tashes are hanging off. And I, I'm I, I'm sort of aware because I've got my um, makeup and special effects head on. What it's like to have to reset. And I I do just sit very still in between takes. And I otherwise you get fiddled with continually. You know, it's, a, it's yeah. a, there's that constant um, thing of um, in filming where it can be that can become irritating you want to get get away from me i remember speaking to kathy burke i did something with her and she said you know why i stopped it and i said no because of all the fucking fiddling <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of the reasons she gave it up she couldn't bear it all that touching and constant like tweaking i did a sitcom when i was played a doctor and all my abiding memory of it all the time was i had a stethoscope around my neck and every single take between takes the, the Continuity people would come and move the stethoscope. <laughs> yeah, fiddle. I said, "You've moved it. I never moved it. It hasn't moved from the last time. You've now moved it. Uh. You've changed it." So that would really annoy me. But um, yeah, it was like that's the, the that's one of the terrible pressures of my life. <laughs> you have people coming up, touching you all the time. Well, one of the great and my things brother is a troll of fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> one of one of the great things about uh, monsters are transitional monsters, the ones that start out as one thing and become something else, particularly humans. And and the tools have evolved so much. You know, practical effects are great, but digital effects, if used properly, can really make things even more realistic. When they're used on their own, it's more difficult to give them weight. But when you start with a, a makeup effect and then you process it, the morphing in Sleepwalkers 30 years ago was something we couldn't have done um, the way that American Werewolf did it be, just because of the time. And the effect was instant. We wanted to see something change very quickly. And CGI was brand new at the time. And using those tools together just kind of opened up a, a, an entirely new world of makeup effects. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's the gulf between it's using it carefully, isn't it, and knowing when it's it augments it and, and help adds to it rather than takes away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it can look very cartoony. Uh, they're getting better and better every day. So, yeah. And you'll see every movie you see these days has digital technology in it, and you just don't notice if it's done really well. Yeah. And other times, you, stuff where you think 
that's clear. That's really bad. Yeah. And it's in. And am I, am I meant to think it's bad? It's drawn my attention to it. Yes. And I, you're not sure whether it's almost like, is it deliberate? Are you just expecting that that will go over my head? Because that's what everything is like. But sometimes it does really ping out as like yeah. a moment you think they could fix or should have fixed. And even when practical effects you know it's not real because it's a monster movie. Yeah. It's still, actors are acting against it. It has weight. You can touch each other. You can rend each other's blood. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but the, the marriage of technologies can really, has expanded the ability to, to create monsters in ways that had never been done before. Absolutely, yeah. And the other thing we should say about the thing is the music. Oh, yeah. Is the, one of the most powerful and sort of queasy disturbing, depressing pieces of music, I think. There's something really haunting about it. It really literally creeps into you. Yeah, and it's credited to Ennio Morricone, but it just sounds like John Carpenter. Yes, yeah. It really sounds like him. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no electric guitar, for one thing. Yeah. Did, was there, was there a, a, a... Was it scored by someone? And then Ennio Morricone? It was, it was yeah. him, yeah and, yeah. and that is him, then. It is him, but yeah. there's obviously a tremendous influence by the director. Of course, yeah, there has to be with it being... And he John. really changed the course of, of soundtracks in horror films with Halloween. Suddenly you had uh, the Jawa films with the music of Goblin that was very reminiscent of um, what had been done w with John. And that's when I met John was... I interviewed him for a magazine and in this tiny little recording studio in Hollywood, and he was recording the score to Halloween. No. Yeah. <laughs> he said, uh, Mick said earlier, he's the Zelig of horror films, and he is. He's literally been at every significant point in the, in the entire history of horror. We'll talk about Poltergeist another time. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Um, are we going to do ask questions, or are we not going to do that? I, I, we have to wrap it up. We've in got to wrap like it up. three minutes. So, right, okay. um, but I just I love that we're able to be here as fans. Absolutely, and talk yeah. about a movie that we're passionate about. That I don't know anybody who doesn't like John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. And if I did, I wouldn't like them. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's amazing that we're finally meeting face-to-face. -face. I never, I, I thought it might happen, but never as quickly as it has. Yeah, I'm so happy about this. And, and Reese, thank you so much for sharing more time with us and being one of our few return guests. Oh, well, you're And I'm to do it welcome. in a really special show and with an audience here. So thanks, everybody here, for joining us for Postmortem. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.